Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall along with co-host Bruce Weiner. Good morning, Bruce. How are you doing today? Good morning, Rachel. Uh, some people may uh, be excited about this topic today, and some people may think, oh, it's going to be boring, but it's, it affects everyday life. So I think everybody should tune in. We'll try to keep it as uh, informative and exciting as possible. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. And today we're talking about inflation. And why are we talking about inflation? Because you have surely heard it on the news. I'm sure that you have become aware of this topic of late. And we want to talk about should you be concerned? And what should you do to make sure that you're in a financial position that you can continue to make progress towards your financial goals, have that solid ground beneath your feet and not feel like you have to be scared of the economic environment around you. And so today we're going to talk about inflation. We're going to talk about the consumer price index. We're going to talk about really how to stay financially strong so that you can weather any economic turmoil in any storm. So let's just kind of go ahead and start off, Bruce. I know that we're having a very organic conversation today, um, but I wanted to be able to share this with our listeners. I know that it's something on your mind. And I want to also point out if you have specific questions, please go ahead and pop those into the chat feature in YouTube or on Facebook if you're watching live. If you're catching us after the live stream, you can always email hello at the money advantage, or you can just put a comment on the YouTube or LinkedIn or the Facebook post as you see it. And we would love to be able to answer your questions directly. So let's talk about this. We'll have several links in the show notes as well. But um, Bruce, I know you have your own research as well. I'll share a little bit here. So from CNBC, the top headline here is consumer prices rise more than expected, pushed up by 9.1% jump in gasoline. And so we see here that the consumer price index is rising. That was actually tied over to another article from CNBC saying that Powell, our Federal Reserve chairman, um, who says that it's highly unlikely the Fed will raise rates, meaning interest rates this year, despite the stronger economy. Bruce, I think there's so much to unpack here. So I'll just go ahead and let you um, share it. The first, maybe the the framework and the, the perspective that we want to take from this, and then we can drill down into what even is the CPI? What even is inflation? What does that mean? What? How does that matter to you and how does it impact us and what should we think about on the horizon? Yeah, I uh, I think this is always an interesting topic because it's a, it's amazing how <clears throat> one person, the Federal Reserve Chairman, <clears throat> excuse me, with research from the seven uh, Federal Reserve banks across the United States can get enough information in a complex um, subject like the economy to make predictions. And I think that's what everybody has to realize is these are only predictions. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, um, and there's actually some conflicting information. Now I I did listen to the federal reserve uh, chairman uh, Powell talk about this. And he actually says, you know, they're going to uh, not raise rates in any foreseeable future. He's also talking about how he doesn't think there's inflation. And Rachel, I actually think before we go, we actually need to talk about what inflation is because I yes. think this is confusing. 
Yes. And I, I do too. I think we need to talk about what is the bare bones definition of inflation? What's it based on? Um, Bruce, so I have definitions right here. You, do you want me to share those and then we can dig into what that means? Yeah. Let me just share something first. Uh, you know, um, I used to think, and, and way before I started studying this stuff, I used to think that, you know, inflation was simply the rise in prices. Like corporations wanted to, uh, you know, get more price profits so that they would just raise the prices on their things so they can make more profit. And although there's some truth to that because there's supply and demand in inflation also, it's really about the supply, the money supply and how much money is available. And we've had Dr. Robert Murphy on the podcast mm-hmm. twice. And he's a, he's a well-known Aust- Austrian economist and he's testified in front of Congress. He's been on television multiple times. He's a well-known expert. And Robert Murphy and I uh, did a little experiment at an event one time where I had a bag and I told everybody to write uh, $10 on the piece of paper. And I pulled out a Hershey's candy bar and I said, how much would you pay for this Hershey candy bar if you only had $10? You know, and one person said a dollar, one person said $2. And then I said, now I got other, I got other consumer products in here that you may need in this bag. Uh, so, you know, be careful how you spend your money. And so finally, I think it was $2 we, 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 we settled on. So I gave the, the audience member uh, their candy bar. They had to change their $10 to $8. And then I said, okay, now before we take out the next item, I'm going to actually double your money supply. Everybody put another $10 on your piece of paper. So now everybody has 20 except for the person that already put, purchased it. They already, they have 18. And then I pulled out an exact replica of the Hershey's candy bar again. And I said, now I have other things here. So be careful how you spend your money. And I said, now, now how much? Well, right away, somebody said like $6. And I stopped right there. And I said, why did you, why did you do $6 when they bought it for $2? They said, well, I got more money. (laughs) And so that's just like, it's just like human nature. We all do it. Um, it's the arrival syndrome that, syndrome that Nelson Nash talked about. It's the uh, it's the uh, uh, Parkinson's law that um, expenses will rise to your income, mm-hmm. and so it's about the money supply. Inflation is really about the money supply, and so that's what the Federal Reserve they try to control the money supply. Unfortunately, that in my in my opinion. That should be um, controlled by the free market, and yes. the, Federal, the Federal Reserve ought to be the lender of last resort, which was their charter when it was set up in 1913. But now their policy is to try to manipulate even asset prices, uh, even the stock market, how it's going to work, so on and so forth. So let's just let's just kind of agree that if the bare bones. Inflation is is the money supply. How much money is in circulation? The more money in circulation, uh, inflation tends to happen. Happen. Asset prices tend to go up. You know, Bruce, that's a really good lead into this because I think a formal definition without understanding how it impacts us is worthless. And so, the feeling of inflation is. I feel like my dollars cannot buy as much because my dollar is worth 
less than it was before. And yes, the contributor of that is that if we have a rising currency supply or supply of money, then with the same amount of goods and services, now all of a sudden, the price of those goods and services goes up and the individual dollar is worth less, not worthless, but worth less than it was before. So if we look at Investopedia, their formal definition of inflation is the decline of purchasing power of a given currency over time. Inflation can be contrasted with deflation, which occurs when the purchasing power of money increases and prices decline. So again, in your same example, Bruce, if you took away everyone's money and reduce their $10 down to $5. Now, what would they be willing to spend on the candy bar? I don't know, 50 cents. Mm -hmm. If they have less money, then that's going to have the purchasing power of each individual dollar do more. So did the candy bar actually become worth less? No, the dollar became able to purchase more if you reduce the money supply. And the dollar is able to purchase less if you increase the money supply. Now, what's really interesting is that if you look at inflation, overall, there's a formal inflation um, figure that's published. And this is through the, what is it? The Bureau, Bureau. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Yes. And so you can find this data. I have access to it through some of the software that we use um, here in our practice. But I'll just share ever since 1913, when inflation formally had a time frame or a, a, a definition and a, a published amount, the I can see the inflation rates per year. These are the formal published inflation rates. So you, I see years with 1% inflation. We see in 1917, it was 17.40. Um, in 1918, it was 18%. Um, we have inflation, then negative inflation, 1921. What was happening then? That was the Great Depression. That's negative 10%. The currency supply was shrinking and dollars were worth even less or they were dollars were worth more than at that time. So negative inflation was deflation at that time. And what's interesting is if we look at the overall, I think the average inflation from now until way back to 1913 was an average of 3.2% per year. So that's kind of a target if you think about inflation, that's not since 1913 that we've had only 3% inflation. That's an average inflation figure per year. So you, what that means is that generally we would expect over time, even though inflation goes up high and even goes negative, that the average is going to increase every year. And that's why things like, I don't know, a banana, a loaf of bread, a pair of shoes cost more than they did 100 years ago. So that's normal and usually in the tune of about 3.2% per year. Now, this is based on the consumer price index, which we have a definition here as well, and we'll show that and publish that. The consumer price index is a measure that examines the weighted average of prices of a basket of consumer goods and services, such as transportation, food, and medical care. It's calculated by taking price changes for each item in the predetermined basket of goods and averaging them. What's interesting though, is that you'll see, um, we have some more links that we will share in the show notes, is that not all of the inflation, not all of the prices increasing that you feel on a day-to-day basis when you go to the gas pump and you go to the grocery store, not all of those are included in the inflation number. So just because you have a certain inflation number does not mean that that's going to be your experience of how your dollars 
will feel in contrast to goods and services? Yeah, I always tell people, okay, first of all, the, the way this is established is the Bureau of Labor Statistics has 400 people across the United States that they go out and buy goods and services that they, and they, and they, and they actually uh, just tabulate all this information from just these 400 people. So I always tell people you have your personal inflation, you have your city inflation, you have your state inflation, you have regional inflation, and you have nationwide inflation, and then you have worldwide inflation. Mm, that's very all, good. All those numbers are different. And you know, and I know that from traveling internationally, because when I we travel to certain countries, the dollar is actually stronger against that currency. So we mm -hmm. can buy more and other dollars. Other times we go to somewhere and the dollar is less, it's less strong. And so it, it doesn't purchase as much. And that is actually good for exporters because uh, the foreign currency can actually put, uh, purchase more goods and services. Um, and it's exactly the opposite if the dollar gets stronger against foreign currencies, because now uh, importers from foreign countries say, well, I'm going to look for another place to actually buy these goods and services than the U.S. because our dollar is weak against the, the, the United States dollar. So mm -hmm. just remember, it's, it's not only your personal inflation, it's also worldwide inflation. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting as well, I'm going to cite a few figures here that are in the news and that you're probably feeling right now. But what I really want to point out is that two important things are not included in the inflation statistic, the inflation number. Core inflation is the change in cost of goods and services, but it does not include food and energy sectors, which means it does not include the grocery store and it does not include the gas pump, which are two places that you are probably feeling the change or the cost of goods and services going up, meaning your dollars are worth less, which is the feeling of personal inflation. And initial reactions to this, like mine used to be, well, that's misleading. But the reason they don't include those two is food and energy tends to bounce around supply uh, amounts and that and supply and demand also is figured into this inflationary. Um, and so if, you know, I lived, I lived in the Midwest, uh, soybean and corn, you know, if you had a bad year because of weather, you would have a lesser supply. Mm -hmm. If you have a lesser supply, then prices go up. If you had an abundant supply, farmers have to compete to sell their their corn or soybeans. I'm just using this as an example for food. Mm -hmm. So they have to lower the prices. Energy is the same way. Uh, we it, There's a seasonal thing to that, right? Because uh, crude oil prices that make gasoline in the summer, a lot of people travel, so on and so forth. Prices tend to go up. Uh, in the winter, don't, they don't tend to travel as much. Prices tend to go down. So that's why- And those are actually related too, Bruce, because- I mean, if we think about it, we have so much food that's transported that energy prices impact the cost of our food because if we're shipping something from, I don't know, Brazil or, uh, I don't know, kiwi or bananas or 
stuff that grows not in the U.S. or even if we're just shipping from one con- one state to another, there's the cost of energy Correct. that goes into the price we pay at the grocery store. Correct. So that's why the CPI says we're going to leave those out because we don't. It doesn't reflect the true what's felt. Uh, some people say, well, I don't really believe in that, but you know, you take it for what it's worth. So you know, the personal consumption expenditure or PCE. You're probably going to talk about next. That's a lot of people like that one a little better. I actually did not was not familiar with that term. Oh. So you can share that. And then there was um just some percentages that we're seeing um, that CNBC is publishing that we're seeing in different sectors or different um, categories of your budgeting software of your personal spending plan in your family that are probably maybe causing your mind to think about well maybe this inflation is real and I need to figure out how to um, set up my personal economy so that I can handle it. So go ahead and share that. Yeah, so the, per- the personal consumption expenditure is basically looking at more of what people spend their money on. The, the Federal Reserve announced, this is more of a Federal Reserve look at this. They started doing this in, two, in 2000. So they don't necessarily look at the CPI as much as the, the PCE, which is, which is the personal consumption expenditure. They still will exclude uh, exclude food and energy, what they call the core PCE. Uh, but what they're trying to do is is look at more of uh, uh, because the Federal Reserve is kind of looking at more of a, a general overall view. So they're going to they're going to compare it to the how the GDP is actually growing. So they're going to say, okay, how much are we actually growing, and does inflation actually keep up with the GDP? You'll hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to use that as a as a benchmark. The so if you hear personal consumption expenditures or PCE, that is the way the Federal Reserve now has has tried to look at inflation, because if GDP keeps going up, it really doesn't hurt that much that inflation is going up. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to make sure it stays relative to the two, and that's why when you occasionally hear people, oh, we're not going to worry about the national debt. They say because as long as we keep it a certain percentage of the GDP, we'll be okay. And um, you know, it used to be thought you know there was a good a good level of that. We have since because of the pandemic and stuff, we've we've passed one hundred percent of debt to GDP, and that that a lot of people say is worrisome mm-hmm. because once you have to pay more money for your debt than what you're actually producing, then there it's it's stymies growth think of it as if you have 30 40 50,000 dollars of credit card debt and you're making an income if that income doesn't continue to go up as much as your credit card payments do then you're then instead of you spending on new expenditures all you're doing is is spending on old expenditures so you're not making any purchases and so that's why they like to they like to do that. You know, it's really interesting that um, we can put a link to, I need to figure out how to share the screen better while we're live when it is relevant. Um, But there is the US debt clock that you can go to and you can look Mm -hmm. up exactly what the, um, what all the figures are right now in, in the US debt. And it's, I, I mean, I cannot even keep track. I think we're like close to 30 trillion, right? Yeah, we're like twenty eight and a half or twenty nine trillion dollars, and it's 
it's ratcheting up as we speak. I mean, the numbers just keep changing and, and growing. And so when you look at that, you could also say, just if we step back from the whole picture and say, okay, well, we can say how bad is US debt versus GDP. But also if you look at just the government themselves, they're the ones doing the spending and what income source do they have? It's taxation. So, so you look at, well, their debt is going to be handled by the U.S. taxpayer, ultimately. And I think that is a, a giant concern. Yes. Okay. So um, let's, I want to share this real quickly. We actually have several comments coming in as well, and hopefully I'll be able to share the debt clock. Okay. So CNBC has another article, consumer prices rise more than expected, pushed up by 9.1 jump in gasoline. What was interested, interesting here is, so they're sh- sharing that the consumer price index rose 0.6% in March from the previous month. But that was a 2.6% increase from the same period a year ago. And a couple factors that they're looking at is, one, they're, they're citing a strong economic recovery. They're also citing that we're comparing to one year ago, which if we look back April 14th week of last year in 2020, we were just coming into a giant concern with COVID and wondering what's going to happen with um, government shutting things down. And we were we were bracing for the effects of what was going to happen, but we weren't really sure. So it's interesting um, when you look at those two factors. They're talking about gas being up 9.1%. Um, that was up 22.5% from a year ago. Now, granted, you feel that differently in different parts of the country, um, but that was part of a 13.2% increase in energy prices. They were saying food was up 0.1% for the month and 3.5% for the year. Grocery store have different indexes and there was a 5.4% increase in the category of meats, fish, poultry, and eggs. They were saying that 6.5% was up in restaurants for pickup, delivery, and takeout. And what was just interesting is those are the figures that you feel. So if all of a sudden your wallet feels a little bit tighter, it's because you're spending more for the same things that you used to be buying at a lower cost. And if your income is not increasing commensurate to that, then you're in a position where you're feeling the effects of inflation at some level. Yeah. And I think, I think we just have to realize that um, if we get a good grasp what inflation is, then people are probably on the podcast saying, well, why should we worry about this? You know, we can't really control it. Right. And I think this is where I would like to say what we're trying to do is say, if you understand the Nelson used to always say this, if you understand the problem, then you'll you're gonna know what to do. And so if you understand inflation, and then I don't know if you're gonna understand what to do for everybody, but what you're gonna do for yourself. So there's pros and cons to inflation. You know, obviously the Federal Reserve. They have stated they want inflation. And one of the reasons that they want inflation is because inflation promotes speculation. And you might think, if you're a real conservative person, you might say, well, gosh, uh, I don't want to speculate. But if you're the Federal Reserve and you're trying to be the puppeteer and pull the right strings on the economy, that that is going to promote speculation so that money that you're just holding in fixed income is losing buying power. So if you want to try to stay up with the buying power, you're going to put it into assets that are going to outpace inflation. And traditionally, those assets 
have been commodities and real estate and and uh, stocks. And so, or you're going to start a business because you're like, I want to, I want to actually have something that I can control and stay ahead of inflation. So these are riskier products that uh, it's promoting and encouraging spending instead of saving. If you're a saver, that's the pros. If you're a saver, fixed income is actually hurt. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that. Well, we can't keep the money in savings. Uh, certain bonds are not good. Uh, there are bonds that are called TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, that sole purpose is to stay up with inflation, but they still don't get a, a greater uh, rate and you're, you're tying your money up. So, but they send you interest every six months. So then you're trying to say to yourself as a personal consumer and a personal uh, person that's trying to build her wealth, what am I more comfortable with, safety or speculation? Mm. And what's interesting about that is that if you're in a position of saying, okay, how do I be prudent and wise and a good steward of my resources? How do I continue to make progress towards time and money freedom, which we know that it's not just saving. You can't just save your way to financial freedom and prosperity, but you also don't want to be in a position where you just have a lot of risk or you're taking on a lot, a lot of risk to try to overcome or outpace inflation or run away from something by spending today so that you won't have to spend more tomorrow. I mean, I loved your example, Bruce, about the the candy bag or the candy bar in the bag. And if we think inflation is coming and our dollars will be worth less in the future, there can be the tendency to say, well, I got to spend today. And if I spend to buy the things that I might want tomorrow, today, then am I being reactive to what is a speculation or a projection of what could potentially happen? Now, we don't want to be blind to this idea either. I mean, obviously, there's been some really challenging situations of inflation throughout the world, like Hungary and Venezuela and Zimbabwe, that there was hyperinflation. We're not there right now in this situation. What we need to do is keep a level head, stay committed to the fundamentals, which is paying yourself first, saving a portion of your income. You want to have that be around 20, 30% of your income or even higher that you're saving, you're not spending today, and you're putting to work for the future. And when you're saving that income, then you want to be able to put that in a place that is giving you as much safety, liquidity, and growth as possible. Now, if you're only putting it in a savings account in the bank, you're not keeping up with inflation with that. You could say that's risky because I'm putting my money in and my dollars in a place where they're losing value, even though maybe it's $100,000 in the account and I it still says $100,000 and it still reads on the line that is $100,000. But if it feels like less because of inflation, are you really doing yourself a huge service? So what you want to do is put them into places that are still safe that are liquid that you can access and use because you need to be able to access capital if you want to be in a financially healthy and safe position and then have as much growth as possible. And that is the number one reason why we have turned to using privatized banking or we call it infinite banking, formerly called infinite banking as well, or using a cash value life insurance policy that will continue to grow with interest and dividends at rates much faster than any other consistent 
steady, predictable savings tool that we've seen. And then the key is not just to leave the money in the life insurance account and grow cash value over time, but to use that capital and borrow against it using a strategy called infinite banking. And what you're doing is you're borrowing against your cash, you're putting those dollars to work, and you're putting them into other investments that do have a good rate of return. The purpose then is to borrow against your policy, put the money to work somewhere else, earn the return in both places at the same time, and then use your returns to pay back your policy loans and be able to recycle the money over and over. But what you want to do as well is not just invest in something risky for the sake of having a good return. You really want to invest in what you know and control. And so that's something that maybe looks different from person to person. Maybe you really know and control the single family housing market and you understand rental income from single family houses. Maybe you don't yet know that, but you want to learn it. So there's two sides of this. First, invest in what you know and can control, meaning you don't have a situation where it can completely just run out of your control and you have nothing to do and nothing to say about it. But where you have knowledge right now, invest there. And if you don't have the knowledge in a, in a space that you really want to gain the knowledge, then learn from people who are doing that already or invest with somebody who has the knowledge so that they you're riding on their shoulders. So don't just put your money in something because it looks like it's really speculative, it's really flashy, and hopefully it's going to stay ahead of inflation. That would be the wrong strategy. Yeah. Or um, before we take a couple or answer a couple of questions, uh, I got a two examples of that. Uh, invest in what you know. <clears throat> so I recently met with uh, a guy that owns, his family owns three spas in, in Scottsdale, or two in Scottsdale and one in Prescott, Arizona. And he is convinced that out of the pandemic, a lot of these spas are not going to survive. And he can simply look at their revenue numbers and their expenses on a P&L on balance sheet and quickly decide whether this is going to be a good investment for him. He's not looking for rental properties. He's not looking for McDonald's franchises. He knows because he runs these three successful that he's just going to be able to look at the P&L and the balance sheet. And he's going to be able to determine whether he wants to uh, purchase that particular spa or not. Um, we have that's uh, an excellent example, Bruce. I, yeah. And every time, I mean, we've talked to Richard Wilson before, who works with ultra wealthy families, and right. they're doing exactly that. They're finding out what is their specific niche. It's not a wide ranging whole industry, or it's not a general category. It's very specific and targeted, like you're talking about. So you can do that, or you can hitch your wagon up to somebody that you know that's all they know. Now, this is not an endorsement. I cannot endorse them uh, at all on the podcast, but Peachtree Peach Hotel Group in Atlanta, Georgia, that's all they do is hotels. And the, their friends and families are the major investors. And they are actually uh, launching a new um, partnership where they're going out to buy hotels right now. And there are people out there that just think they're crazy. Why would you buy hotels right now? Because, you know, the pandemic has caused people not to travel, so on and so forth. And they're saying, well, we know how this all works. We've been through these ups and downs. The hotels now that we are, that we are purchasing can't make it now, so they have to drop their asset prices. We can look at the matrix on all these things, matrices on all these things, and we can make a decision very quickly and gobble up these new things for our investors and then uh, run them properly. And when the 
pandemic uh, is, you know, we come out of the pandemic, they believe that they're going to get back to pre-pandemic levels, but they purchase the asset at a lower price. And so those are great examples of how you can take advantage. And the last thing I want to talk about is I get this question a lot from consumers about, well, if bond prices are depressed and life insurance companies actually make most of their returns on bonds, shouldn't we be worried that increased prices in bonds, increased interest in bonds is going to cause insurance companies to not raise their dividends because they're holding bonds that are lower. We talked about this before the show. Mm-hmm. So example, if I held a bond, a 10-year treasury bond, which is a $1,000 par, so you buy it in $1,000, and it's at 1%, and the interest rates next month go to 1.5% on a 10-year treasury, then my bond that I'm holding is worth less. So in order to get a try to get a greater return, I can try to go out in the open market and sell that bond, but I'm going to have to sell it at a discount instead of getting $1,000 for it. I may only get $800. Mm-hmm. That person's only going to get 1% return, but they're looking at the overall return when they cash the bond in in 10 years, they're going to get an additional 200 and that has to, you have to then um, amortize that return over the lifetime that you have actually held the bond. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. life insurance companies though, you have to do that as a person, uh, a person, because in order to get the higher interest rate, you have to sell your bond to redeploy it. Life insurance companies don't have to do that. So you have to actually look at two things. You look at life insurance companies that said, I'm not even going to hold a lot of bonds right now. I'm just going to stay in cash so that when, in, when interest rates go up, I'm going to purchase at higher interest rates. They beat the system then. Or you say, <clears throat> we're not going to sell our bonds. We're just going to hold them to maturity. But we have new money coming in every month from premiums, both from already established owners and new policy owners that mm-hmm. we can now buy the increased bond prices and hold them to maturity. You're looking at it from a short-term investment as an individual. Mm-hmm. Insurance companies look out 70, 80, 90, 100 years so they can hold things to maturity and not try to buy, sell, buy, sell to try to get a yield. So that, uh, that I just wanted to clear up. In case people are thinking, well, wait a minute, bonds are bad in an inflationary time period um, because you're losing power, uh, purchasing power. It is unless you can actually buy the bonds that are going up in interest rate. I think that's very well said, Bruce. And I know as we talked about before the show and I think a little bit last show as well, talking about bonds, it can be a challenge to understand which is the the growth and which is the yield. But what's really interesting is the long-term perspective and yes, while bonds might be bad in an inflationary environment, the value of being able to have this long-term perspective is that, as you said, they're able to buy the bonds as the interest rates do rise, which means you're going to end up with higher returns inside the life insurance than are projected right now when, bond, when bonds do go up. 
So it's just really interesting to be able to look at that. I think I have a way to share my screen. I'm going to do this real quick here. And oh, I do. Okay. I want to share just this window. So hopefully we'll be able to do this a little bit more on the show, but this is the U.S. debt clock. Um, can you see that, Bruce? Yes. Okay. So usdebtclock.org, you can go here. Here's the national debt, 28 trillion. It's crazy to even look at that number here. There's definitions at the top if you hover over it. What's really interesting is this, this is the U.S. federal spending deficit. Here's the budget deficit. And if you look down, if you scroll down here to total U.S. debt is thousand million, billion, trillion, 85 trillion is U.S. total debt. And we can look at the largest budget items here. These are some unfunded liabilities. This is just fascinating yeah. to look at. Yeah, unfunded liabilities would include future um, payments that must be made from Medicare and Social Security. Mo that's what most of that, if you look over... If you this look right over, here. Yeah, to the left, there's Medicare and Social Security make up the highest amount. There's also national pensions in there. Um, and I'm not sure what else is, is in I don't there. see the pensions listed, oh, but... I know, but I know, but yes. if you look at if you look at that red bar at the bottom, it yes. does say Social Security, yep. Medicare, and then I, I'm almost certain that they're inside that unfunded U.S. liability. Here, if we hover over it, I don't know if I can get that to the top of the screen here. Unfunded liabilities, yes, includes Medicare Parts A, B, and D, federal debt held by the public, plus federal employee and veteran benefits, generally accepted yep. accounting yep. principles. So you can do a lot of your own research on this own your on this website on your own, but I just wanted to share this fascinating piece of data with you, and it's just mind-boggling how the numbers keep rising. If you go down to the lower left, you're going to see the money creation. Yes, here, and right in the middle, it does say U.S. M2 money supply now, and you can you can actually see the money supply actually increasing right there before your eyes. Yes, so that's at twenty billion right now. Thousand million billion. Twenty trillion. I don't know what I said. Twenty trillion. That's trillion, insane. Yeah. Which the money supply then is lower than the debt. And GDP here, federal debt to GDP ratio. I don't know if we have just a straight GDP number. We have tax revenue here of yeah, well, you see, that's what I was talking about. It's now over 100%. Oh. It's 130% of uh, that and that U.S. federal debt to GDP ratio, the far right of that, where it says now. Yes. Okay. 130%. Here. And most people think that's a big warning sign. Um, most countries that have sustained more debt to GDP ratio, sustained that, have had stagnated growth for decades. I, I think I gave the example of uh, Japan, you know, finally crossed over after 30 years, their, their uh, stock market actually uh, crossed over to uh, a new high after 30 years because of stagnation in Japan. Oh, wow. I do not recall you sharing that on the show. So thank you for sharing that. This is just fascinating. So uh, maybe we'll dig into that a little bit more on a future episode as well. So I'll stop the share. And Bruce, do you have time for a couple of questions? We've got a lot of activity yep. specifically on YouTube here. We probably won't get to it all. So um, Nolan here, do you really believe that the Fed can raise rates at this point? U.S. debt is so large that if they increase the interest rate, then our interest would consume the entire amount of the U.S. budget. 
Nolan, I think that's a lot. You're using logic, and I don't think they use logic. I think what they're saying is if they do not try to raise rates, then when the economy needs a boost, they don't have any they don't have any bullets in their guns to actually drop the rates at that time. So I think they will raise rates because you're absolutely right. They're gonna they're gonna have to pay more in interest in the future because of mm-hmm. that. But it's short term, you know, people can, it's a lip service. You know, we do it, we do it as consumers all the time. We know we shouldn't buy something and delayed gratification, but we do it anyway. And I think when you got somebody like the, the, the chair, uh, the federal reserve chair person, you had the U S treasury, Janet Yellen, they're they're They, they don't have any alternative. They're saying, at least that's what they say is that, we're not going to uh, make it miserable now. We'll worry about the future in the future. And I think I don't think it's necessarily right, but a lot of people say, well, they're they're too de- they're too far down the road now. Uh, where they're just going to have to worry about resetting the entire monetary system someday with a horrible crash, and um, nobody knows when that's going to be. But every society that's done it uh, like this has reset their monetary system. So we'll see. That's another fascinating topic here. Okay, so Jesus says, Nolan, don't worry about the national debt. It's just dollars in circulation that haven't been taxed out. The national debt will grow until the day you die. Yeah. Unless there's that's a, a... That's a great Keynesian uh, uh, listener. I'm surprised we have a Keynesian listener here. All right. So, or maybe uh, I'm not sure that could be a little tongue in cheek. I'm not sure. Um, Nolan says, Jesus, I suggest looking at the history of fiat currencies. You're familiar with Venezuela, Argentina, Zimbabwe, not a happy outcome when the fiat currency is not trusted anymore. Jesus uh, has a laughing face here. uh, Venezuela's economy is dependent on one commodity, which is oil. So when oil was at 120 a barrel, they were doing good. When it dropped down, that got to hyperinflation. That should have invented and they should have invented an infrastructure. Argentina was this is Jesus still talking. Yep. Um, Argentina was not a sovereign fiat currency. They had debt denominated in dollars. So when the US went to collect, they had to pay up. Yeah. All those things are true. There's actually a YouTuber, his name is Drew Binsky, and he has traveled to every country in the world. And I just recently watched last night his um, episode on Venezuela. It was fascinating. Hmm. Uh, Drew Binsky, B-I-N-S-K-Y. And he actually was holding stacks of the Venezuela currency that was worth like $10. And so he was like taking like three and four inches of their their dollars and giving it to somebody for a $2 uh, taxi ride. And then what's interesting, during the show, he actually says that... um, in a lot of places, they won't even take the currency. They only mm-hmm. take U.S. They will. They will only take U.S. dollars. Oh, interesting. Uh, and because they they have faith in the U.S. dollar, and that is once again why some people don't worry about debt because they say we are the world's currency. Everybody's going to have full faith in this, so don't worry about it. Um, depends on your definition of faith, I guess. Sure. But, but he was right. You know, the, they got in trouble because of the oil industry and they weren't a very diverse economy. That's 100% true. People, you have to realize that hyperinflation cannot continue forever. 
because something will come in to replace the currency, whether it's you know gold or whether it's something else that people believe has value. It just so happens now the U.S. dollar is starting to be that for Venezuela. Prices will come down, and you know uh, that will reset. And that's what I was talking about earlier. You'll just have to reset the entire economy. But they'll be paying for a while, and, and Venezuela is going through pain right now. I think they've had five million people immigrate out of Venezuela in the last, I think it was like twenty years or something like that. Uh, Interesting that figure up. It's a very big figure. Wow. Uh, um, because of the pain. All right. I think we've got the whole discussion was between um, these two guys here. So. We'll continue on here. Um, question was, Bruce, do you think hedonic adjustments used in CPI is legitimate? Well, I, what, you, what, you, what you may or may not know about my personality is I, I believe there's legitimacy in every argument. Um, and I think it's about your perspective and what you're trying to accomplish. So I'm not going to say it's not legitimate. It's one way to look at it. Um, and I think we ought to always have multiple ways of looking at things. And that is part of the problem in the communication of our politics right now. Um, you know, it's, it, it's like people are, if you're one side of the aisle, you're always wrong. If you're, the, if you're on the other side of the aisle, you feel like you're always right. I said this to one of my friends yesterday because I was commenting on the power of government and they basically said, Oh yeah, but you, you listen to that person. I'm not going to name the name, but it was a, it was a U.S. Senator and he's a Republican and he's a jerk. And I, and I said, and this is what I used to do with, uh, as a teacher. I used to always remember this and I want everybody to remember this. Good people do bad things and bad people do good things. So you can't discount everything just automatically because of the source or the agenda or the objectives or the goals. And I say this to people all the time. I don't know the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell personally. I don't know Janet Yellen personally, but I believe that they are trying to do what's best and they have the, the goal, which is to make everybody as prosperous as possible. Now, we can argue whether all of their, their policies are wrong or some of their policies are wrong, mm-hmm. but, I, but I think there's validity in every policy. I think I did a good job of sitting on the fence about that, but I, I think that's the only way you can solve problems is to have communications that things might be right and wrong and there's good in everything. Bruce, I think that's a very healthy perspective. And I tend to be in the same position. I tend to see this both sides of any argument. And so I love the fact that we can have an open dialogue and we can talk about things that people might frequently disagree with. And I think that doing it in a respectful way and doing it with the ambition and the goal to provide education and to come up with good solutions is going to produce fruit. Whether it's uh, the right argument or the right answer, it's not always as relevant as the fact that it's the best thing that you can do in that time. So, all right. Jesus says Zimbabwe, the problem was that they had an agricultural economy. So then Mugabe stole farmland and gave it to his soldiers. His soldiers didn't know how to farm it. So it didn't matter how much they printed. The food wasn't there. 
Nolan said, I'm of the opinion that the way we calculated CPI before, oh, different topic. The way we calculated CPI before 1983 was more legitimate. We only changed the CPI. So government payments tied to inflation would be reduced among other reasons. Jesus says inflation is not a monetary phenomenon, but a resource constraint. Interesting. Um, yeah, no. And I agree, I agree, Nolan, but then you have to say to yourself, well, did that help consumer confidence? That um, Because when inflate, a lot of people stress out when inflation goes up, and so maybe they're not as productive because they're stressed out. So you, you got to look at all the aspects of it. But uh, yes, certainly you make a very good point. All right. This is a lot to read. Um, I'm not sure we want to continue on all of these. I think, Bruce, I'm halfway through. Do you? <laughs> um, thank okay. you guys for chiming in. I really appreciate Here, Here's an interesting question or comment. Um, somebody says cryptocurrency, question mark. Bruce, do you want to comment oh, on that at all? Yeah, actually, actually, I've been I've been talking to we actually have a couple of, of younger guys here in our our tax department at E3 tax that actually are cryptocurrency consultants they're building a business over cryptocurrency and and their uh, argument is cryptocurrency is actually a really good uh hedge against inflation just like gold's a hedge against inflation now i would argue and i argue with them all the time yeah but i can hold gold in my hand or silver in my hand and i know the supply is limited they say well that's all right because bitcoin supply is limited too there's only so many bitcoins and I said, and I said, yes, but we still don't know who created Bitcoin. We, and they say that's okay because we legitimize, we it's legitimized by the blockchain and everybody on it. So the short answer is, yes, people believe that fleeing to Bitcoin is an actual hedge against inflation because there is a limited supply mm. of Bitcoin. You just have you, but then you have to say, if it's not, if a lot of people don't feel like it's tangible, the reason that people believe in gold is because it's tangible. Mm -hmm. You know, they can actually hold it or silver. They can hold it. Right. Um, Bitcoin, they can't, you can't hold it. It's all electronic. So then people are like, "Uh, do I really trust it? I don't know. But more and more people are starting to trust it. Insurance companies are starting to buy it. Obviously the big one, Elon Musk. Um, says now you can, you know, they bought a bunch of it and you can buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. So it, it, any money supply, a fiat money supply or a non-fiat money supply, there has to be some trust. Just you have to argue which one has more trust. But yeah, Bitcoin, people are arguing there's a good hedge against inflation. This uh, was a really good conversation. I think um, the only thing that we can come back to real quick here as we wrap up our time, um, Nolan was mentioning life insurance, and I think this was about the time we were talking about life insurance, but just about five minutes ago here, Jesus says, okay, quick question. Isn't life insurance benefits in dollars? If the dollar collapses, then that would mean life insurance is also worthless. He said, come on, man, why buy life insurance? I don't know if he was talking to us or to Nolan. Nolan says, I leverage it to buy silver and real estate. And if the dollar survives longer than I expect, then I have benefits of the U.S. dollar while hedging against its inevitable demise. Yeah. And what is really interesting about that is that at this time, you can diversify out of the U.S. dollar if you want to. Now, I use life insurance because I'm in a position where I'm allowing my dollars to grow 
faster than another savings tool. And I'm personally using my dollars in my life insurance policy to buy land and to buy invest in my business. And both of those are investments that I'm expecting to increase and significantly outpace inflation. And so when you look at using a life insurance policy, it's for two reasons. One, it is so that you have safe dollars that you can access and use that are growing, but it's also so that you can borrow against that capital and keep these dollars working for you. So even if there is inflation or God forbid, even hyperinflation at some point in the future, I have something that is working in US dollars and it is working as hard as I can get my US dollars to work for me. And what's really interesting is that, I mean, Bruce, we've mentioned this before, but if if we went to complete hyperinflation, then there's a whole bunch more that is going to break down right. in a society. And that's what where we're going. You're right. talking about the reset. Hey, let's make this let's make this really simple. And I think this is what we don't do a lot of times. All we're saying is your money has to lay somewhere. Even your worthless money has to lay somewhere before you deploy it. We're just saying that we believe that the returns you can get not only on the dollars in a life insurance policy, but also the protection you can get on a leveraged death benefit is better than just leaving it in a bank. That's that's all we're endorsing. But then we're saying, keep that money in motion. Go do something with the money. You know, I used I used mine several years ago to purchase silver coins. So I'm using that to hedge against, yes, the possible de- demise of the dollars that are paid out by a life insurance company. So yes, every Jesus and Nolan, you're both right. You're saying the same thing. You're just getting to it in different ways. And I think that's important. We all have a different journey of arriving to the conclusions that we figure out are the best path for us to take right now. Um, thank you guys so much for being with us on this live episode. Thank you for contributing to the conversation, for asking questions, for the dialogue. Um, and I will just leave the conversation here. If you are interested in finding out more about privatized banking and infinite banking and how that can work for you, hop on over to themoneyadvantage.com and you can find every link to everything that we've produced, whether it be podcast, video, we have download resources. We have also a course on infinite banking. And so you can dig into as much as you want to know about this tool of the wealthy and banks and corporations that are using this to be able to generate and create tremendous wealth. So if you want to, um, I also want to point out that that's one step in a bigger journey to time and money freedom. First, you want to protect the money that you make and keep as much of it as possible. Keep as much of it, then protect it, then use it to make as much more as possible. So don't even in this hyper, this conversation about potential inflation, don't jump to I just need my dollars to make as much more as possible. Don't forget the groundwork of keeping as many dollars that you make as possible. That's being efficient with the money you're already making and protecting that money. Those are key components that will give you financial stability. If you need help with that, our advisors are here to talk with you. You can find our calendar at themoneyadvantage.com as well. And you can book directly on our calendar to be able to have a conversation about how to implement anything in your personal financial life so you can move closer more quickly to time and money freedom. Please give us the thumbs up. Please um, subscribe to our show wherever you're watching from. And as we close today, thank you for being with us. Remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. 
Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.